Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is Princess Molly. <laughs> okay. I'm Kristen. So, Molly, there is a new Disney princess. There is. Who has debuted. Yes. Princess and the Frog is the movie. Yeah, the Princess and the Frog. It takes place in New Orleans, combines a little voodoo, a little jazz. But the big thing about this movie is that it is the first African-American Disney princess. Right. I feel like it's been talked about just for months now. People waiting to see what this black princess is going to be like. As soon as they announced it, already people started to be critical of her, saying, you know, oh... She wasn't black enough. She was too black. It was going to be in New Orleans. It was going to have all these stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Um, people have been dissecting this long before the movie was even finished. And Disney went to great lengths while it was uh, making this movie to try to quell any types of uh, discomfort people might have had with, like you said, on either side of it, making, you know, uh, including too many stereotypes or not making her um, realistic enough. And uh, for instance, they even had Oprah come in and do an advanced screening of it. I think they had people from the NAACP come in and see it um, because this is a really big deal. And uh, one thing that's been really controversial, though, with it is the uh, questionable racial identity of Tiana's love interest. In Lavigne. Lavigne, yeah. Um, basically, he is a lighter skinned. There's, Disney is saying that he's just a lighter skinned African-American, but people are saying, uh, no, he's totally white. And why couldn't you make him the same you know, skin tone as Tiana? Like. So there's already there's already a lot of discussion about this movie. And there is this New York Times article that came out in May by Brooks Barnes about all the controversy about this movie. And I really liked one quote from it uh, from Floyd Norman, who had worked on a lot of Disney movies. Um, and he wrote, overly sensitive people see racial or ethnic slights in every image. 
And in their zeal to sanitize and pasteurize everything, they've taken all the fun out of cartoon making. And Tiana is under all this scrutiny because people have just become convinced that whatever you show a child in a Disney film mm-hmm. is somehow going to impact them forever. Yeah, but I do I do think we should know that this uh, New York Times article also points out that the prince hails from the fictional land of Maldonia and is voiced by a Brazilian actor, which is also kind of added, I guess, further fuel to the fire. But like you said, I mean, is are we really just being, are we being too, you know, overly sensitive? Are we, you know, putting too much value on the impact of a Disney movie on the way a child is going to view the world in the future? And specifically with this um, concept of the Disney princesses. Right. And it just, you know, you can't deny that Disney Princess in and of itself is a great marketing technique. What oh, they yeah. did um, a few years ago was they packaged nine of the female characters who weren't even necessarily royal determined princesses, mm-hmm. you know, um, and just called them the princesses. And it accounts for billions of sales every year. It's the largest girls franchise on the planet. Yeah. And it basically saved Disney's merchandising at the time. It was just plummeting. And then this guy named Andy Mooney st- stepped in and thought, you know what? We need to merchandise some princess stuff. And it's huge. And I can attest to that. My niece obsessed with Disney princess stuff. I have purchased Disney princess gear for her to wear because she looks adorable in <laughs> fake satin gloves. You know, call me a bad aunt, but it's kind of cute. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a thing. You see so many nurseries that just feature all the princesses from... And wait, we should probably list all the princesses there are. Yes. Can, Can you, you name the them all official, off the top of your head? The official princesses. Do it. No, because I'm, I'm looking at them on a piece of paper. <laughs> um, there's Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, Snow White, Ariel, Belle... Jasmine, Milan, and Pocahontas. Now, Milan and Pocahontas don't show up on as much um, Disney princess stuff, uh, but those are the official princesses. And now, and now Tiana. Tiana. And Tiana has been selling like gangbusters. Yeah. And, you know, part you said Milan and Pocahontas don't show up on a lot of um, merchandise, and that's largely thought to be because of their outfit. It's girls want sort of a flowy dress, which is part of the reason I think Tiana has a really beautiful dress. And so... They say they're just appealing to these girls who want to play dress up and look like a princess. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if you go to Disney World, there's like a bibbidi-bobbidi-boo boutique where they do your hair and makeup like a Disney princess. I you think can... the word was actually shimmer makeup. <laughs> true, true. Shimmer makeup. And I believe the website said something like, if a, if a male is required by the court, we can put some hair gel in his hair. Ho, ho, ho. Ho, ho, ho. Um, it's become just this whole lifestyle. You could have an enchanted hamper. To put your princess clothing in. And if you never grow out of this, um, there's a woman who makes engagement rings inspired by Disney princesses. And I think that I have even seen um, Disney princess inspired wedding gowns as well, Molly. I know. it's It really is a whole, a whole lifestyle. But then when something becomes a whole lifestyle, you've got parents rushing in and saying, is this the right lifestyle for my daughter? Should she be dressing like a princess Are these princesses even good role models? Because if you reduce them down, I guess, to simple plot points, then you basically have a lot of girls who just want to get married and give up their dreams of anything but marriage. And when you think about the core Disney princess movies, such as uh, Snow White and uh, Sleeping Beauty and The Little Mermaid, they all have these common elements of a girl who basically falls in love with someone and then she needs to be rescued by him to therefore validate her like royal line. 
Exactly. And I think probably the one that gets a lot of the most flack would be Ariel from The Little Mermaid mm-hmm. because she gives up her voice. Yeah. Like, is there anything that like a good um, feminist mom would hate more than a woman who gives up her voice to attract a man? Right. Because Eric, uh, all, all Eric needs is just her, her beauty to mm-hmm. be to be charmed by her. He doesn't even need to hear a word she has to say. <laughs> and the same thing happens to Belle with that Gaston. He walks around, he's like, she's the most beautiful, so she's the best. Yeah. Doesn't seem to care that she also reads books. Yeah, and then, you know, when you go into Aladdin, I remember, and I remember noticing this as, I can't remember how old I was when Aladdin came out, but I was young enough to watch it and be entertained. Um, but I do remember when I first saw it, thinking how tiny Jasmine's waist was. Oh, yeah. She is a small girl. Teensy. Let's go ahead and talk about body image, because that's one thing that um, a lot of people point out about the princesses is that they're all very tiny. And going back to Little Mermaid, who does she have against her but this giant Ursula? Yeah. She's an octopus. She's basically just an overweight, kind of nasty-looking woman. So in simplified Disney terms, people are worried that the message that is sent is that thin and beautiful equals good Mm -hmm. and big and ugly equals bad until they're redeemed by a princess like Beast, for example. Of course. Um, So there is one study that just came out, I think, very timely for the Tiana movie um, about whether Disney princesses can make young girls over obsessed with thinness. And this was sort of a landmark study because uh, there have been plenty of studies that have confirmed that uh, media does impact body image dissatisfaction in girls who are seven and older. But what this study really tried to do was look at how it impacted girls six and younger. Mm-hmm. So these researchers brought in 121 girls aged three to six and showed them video clips. Now, half the girls would watch clips with princesses. And the other half would watch non-princess cartoons like Dora, Clifford, and Dragon Tales. And so then they, after they watched these clips, they just went into a room and played. And they were trying to see if the girls who watched the princess clips would um, play dress up more, if they would look in the vanity mirrors more, if they'd be more obsessed with dressing up, I guess. And then they would ask them about um, who they thought an ideal princess was. Mm-hmm. And some of the pictures were of, you know, very thin girls in ballerina costumes, and then some were heavier girls in ballerina costumes. And then they also asked them about their own body image. So now we'll go through the results. Yeah, so the results showed that um, of the participants, 31% said that they always worry about being fat, and another 18% sometimes worried about it. And that's unreal because these are girls three to six years three old. Three to six. So is it the Disney movies? Well, let's keep going, though. One third of the girls desired a thinner ideal figure compared to their current size. And when asked to pick the real princesses, half the girls chose the thinnest model. But here's the thing. You can be you can feel good about taking a girl to see young, thin Princess Tiana because the measures weren't affected by the princess videos. The girls who watched the princess clips did not pick a thin princess any more than the girls who watched the Dora clips. Yeah, the researchers suspect that it might have something to do um, not so much with the kind of movies or television that these girls were watching, but rather the kind of messages that their parents might have been reinforcing. For instance, if their mom, you know, or dad had been constantly complaining about their weight or uh, and I think we should also point out that a number of these girls also were overweight. And so they might have been also receiving messages from teachers and parents that they need to 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 drop some pounds as well. Mm hmm. 
So it's not so much in this age group what these girls watch. It's not Disney that makes them upset. They think that it's still sort of, you know, I don't want to use the word healthy, I guess, but still a good way to play in that they see a princess, they become that character themselves, and they don't feel disqualified from playing princess because they are heavier. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's more of the messages they get at home. But just because, but this study's pretty new. Maybe people are still digesting it. Um, because there are plenty of parents who still want to blame Disney for all the things that girls take on about themselves. Yeah, there was one article um, in the New York Times by Peggy Orenstein, and she cannot stand this princess obsession. She thinks that this whole idea, um, it just promotes this idea of women as just passive objects in need of a man to save them and also um, communicating this message that in order to be desired, you must be a thin, attractive, you know, ideal beauty instead of um, promoting, you know, the, the idea of a girl being strong and smart and able to stand on her own two feet. And to take the example of Mulan, who people often point out, goes off and is a warrior taking on a man's role, that's the one who often isn't pictured. And if she is pictured, she's pictured in her female clothes, which she didn't even like in the movie. Mm-hmm. So it's saying that it's reinforcing gender roles, to put it so simply, is that you see Cinderella doing housework until a prince rescues her. I mean, yeah. really, she's probably going to be doing, she would have been doing more housework after she'd got married, <laughs> if she hadn't married the prince. Well, and also, this, all of this kind of goes back to the very first podcast, not only that we did, on why do boys wear pink and girls wear blue, and it's basically, um, I think the uh, one of the reasons why Ornstein has such a big problem with this is, like you said, it's just this um, kind of socialized way to reinforce um, a child's gender. Mm-hmm. Because before, I think, what is it, like age like five or six, like studies have shown that kids um, don't necessarily assign themselves to a gender. And they think that it's really because of, um, you know, societal influences such as, you know, buying a truck for a boy and a doll for a girl that starts to build these ideas um, in the young kids' minds of like who they are mm-hmm. as, as boys or girls. So Ornstein also has to devote some time in her essay to just stressing that if she doesn't buy you know a kid a Cinderella balloon, is she somehow showing this girl that it's bad to be a girl? Mm-hmm. Because if this is sort of the epitome of young girliness, if you deny the kid that, then do you deny them their gender? It gets very... Um, it seems like being a parent is just a, a constant mind scramble. Well, especially, you know, because you want to, I can understand, um, you know, her concern because if you, you know, if you have a, a little girl, you want to make sure that, that you raise her to be a, be a strong, smart young woman. But I thought that she made an interesting point, um, in this article. She talked to a historian at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and he said that, um, historically, these kind of princess craze emerges during periods of uncertainty and profound, um, social change. And he, um, uses the example of the Little Princess, the book that was published, um, and was then uh, made into a film starring Shirley Temple. And he said it was published at a time of rapid urbanization, immigration, and poverty, and that the movie, the Shirley Temple movie, was a huge hit during the Great Depression. And it was kind of this sort of, I guess, um, escapist sort of folktale that um, young girls could really identify with. And it also gave them a chance to um, play savior during times of economic crisis and stability. Mm-hmm. And so then they're saying that 
now that we are also, again, in uncertain times, that might be why the Disney princesses are so popular. Yeah. But then Ornstein gets worried that if in this time of uncertainty, playing princess and having this escapism eventually damages a girl because they think they have to be everything. They have to be so attractive and in a beautiful dress and also make good grades and uh, save the prince when he falls off the ship. Um, so it's she worries about stress she might be putting on her children later on. Um, and also, I guess what Disney is trying to do now is to you would um, segue from princesses when you're very young to fairies, yes. which have more sass and attitude. Because originally Tinkerbell from Peter Pan was going to be a Disney princess. And they're like, oh, she's not really a princess. We're going to make her into a fairy. And so now the Disney fairies are like the next big thing. But the thing, Molly, that I keep coming back to when I'm reading all of this critique of, um, you know, these princess stories and princess gear and our girls too obsessed with the color pink and all of this is I can't get over the fact that it, at the end of the day, it's 25,000 merchandise items for sale. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the, the whole fairy thing isn't necessarily, you know, they aren't trying to make girls like fairies. They just want you to buy the stuff. That's yeah. all that matters. They just want me to go in and see the snow white dress that I know will look adorable on my niece so I can take a picture of her and say how <laughs> cute she is. Um, you know, so I'm wondering if we're really just overanalyzing, really over, overly scrutinizing just junk, merchandising yeah. junk. And I guess that, you know, if you are a parent and you're spending that much money on these outfits and all the accessories that go with them, that maybe that's when you start to criticize the, what the girls might stand for. Mm-hmm. Um, someone like Ariel, who does give up, you know, a large part of her identity. But, you know, you can find so many of these um Articles now that will go back and forth on whether these girls are good role models or not. Um, we found one article that was by Rebecca Ann C. Do Rosario, and it, the article was published in Women's Studies in Communication. And what I really took away from this article was more about how women can just put each other down. Mm-hmm. A lot of the the damage that's done to these young princesses are by um, other women. Yeah, um, she kind of points out that. Um Specifically in, uh, like Snow White and Sleeping Beauty, you have, like, distinct ages of women that it focuses on. You have, like, the young beauty, mm-hmm. and then you have kind of the evil stepmother who is in, you know, kind of crested over her prime and is, you know, is jealous of her, you know, youth. And then you have the older fairies who mm-hmm. help out, like the fairy godmothers who will help out. And that it is these socially constructed relationships with fairies that are beneficial to women. Like these princesses never have mothers. Mm-hmm. And so they have to find their own families that can help them. And in some ways, that's kind of a positive thing to put out there for girls. Yeah. Um, and she goes on to say that it's not like these princesses are really enslaved by a patriarchy necessarily, because it's not like their fathers, the kings, wander around going, man, I wish I had a son. It's more that they do have the power to lead their kingdom. Mm-hmm. Of course, it is by getting married, but, um, you know, most parents want their kids to get married. I mean, that's what Peggy, even Peggy Orenstein says, you know, even though I don't want her to feel like she's a princess all her life, I still want her to get married and have children. Sure. Um, and then uh, I thought there was another interesting analysis of um, whether or not 
these um, females, like comparing the decision-making process of males and females in these Disney princess movies. And this was a paper um, put out by a pair of researchers at Pacific Lutheran uh, University. And um, they said, and this is a quote from the study, said when the female characters are portrayed initially as desirable, powerful, autonomous, in control and independent, they make decisions that are often evaluated in the film as a failure, uh-huh. with the characters blaming themselves for the negative consequence. For instance, we keep going back to Little Mermaid, but it's an easy example. You know, she makes this decision to, she makes this pact with Ursula, loses her voice, and then Ursula almost kills, um, you know, her father and the prince and the whole underworld kingdom almost goes goes down. Yeah, I mean, you can keep going back and forth on whether they're good role models or bad role models. That one says their decision is frowned upon, whereas in the previous study we just cited, you know, she says that's kind of a revolutionary thing to do to get out of your father's grip and to see what else is out there, you know, mm-hmm. to, to get away from this kingdom that you don't want to part in. So basically, I don't think there's any way to win where these Disney princesses are concerned. And Krista and I were left feeling kind of you know, ambivalent about the whole brouhaha around them. Yeah, I mean, I will say that, um, and I don't know if this is an exact memory, because you know sometimes you have, like, those childhood memories that might not have really <laughs> been right on. But from what I remember in kindergarten, when I I would have, like, say for after school, and every single day, from what I can remember, we would watch Cinderella. Mm-hmm. You know, so I grew up, you know, as a very young child, having seen Cinderella, you know, like 30, 40 times. You know, I watched, I can sing many of the songs by heart to The Little Mermaid. And we've been singing songs all morning. I've been singing songs all morning. And, uh, and of course, you know, we all saw Snow White and Sleeping Beauty kind of freaked me out. So I didn't watch oh, it. I that loved much. that one. That was my favorite. <laughs> I just loved it when the fairies made her the cake and the dress. Oh, that was a good part. But anyway, but my point is, you know, like you and I are now sitting here talking about it from this perspective and we seem to have turned out okay, you know, mm. into pretty smart, independent thinking woman, not to toot our own horns. But I mean, it kind of makes me wonder again, like, are we, are we really like putting too much stock into the impact of these movies on young girls? Yeah, but we weren't subject to the Disney princess marketing. That's very true. So I don't know. Again, I think it just goes back to the marketing, not necessarily the content of the actual films. Mm-hmm. Because then if you look at the actual films, most of them are based on fairy tales and folk tales, which it's probably their own podcast in terms of how they treat women. But I mean, I just don't, it's hard for me to look at a thing. We found this thing on a sociological images blog that reduced Belle to someone who saves the princess life with her only asset, her sexuality. I mean, it's just not what I got from Beauty and the Beast. Well, but all of them, though, I think there is something to say that they all have in common the fact that they are very attractive women who, um, you know, are basically cherished mostly for their beauty. True. So that might not be the best message to be sending. But But my niece does look cute in those dresses. So we want to hear from you guys, like Disney princesses, good or evil. Yeah, what do you think? Who's your favorite one? Yeah, and what do you think about Tiana? Let us know your thoughts. And you can do that by emailing us at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. Yes. And do we have some listener mail, Molly? We have one. Okay. We'll do just one because we've already kind of rambled on about various thoughts on Disney princesses. This is um, a comment from Katie on the Vampire podcast, and she wanted to kind of stick up for Bella, who we who we dissed a little bit. And she says the difference comes down to the books versus the movies. 
So here are her points for how the books show that Bella is, in fact, a strong character. Um, Bella, the books allude to the fact that Bella is more of an adult than her mother and takes care of her family in Arizona, meaning she's mature. She leaves everything behind to move in with her father, who ha- she hadn't seen in years, in order to make her mother happy, meaning she's self-sacrificing. She goes above and beyond to encourage Angela and give her the confidence she needs to ask out a boy, and she does the same with Jessica and Mike. She's not looking for a boyfriend and turns down several boys' dates offers. She's happy with the life she has, and it's Edward who seeks her out, which means she's fulfilled already without a boy in her life. Uh, she takes over all the responsibilities of running a household when she moves in with her father. In the book, she does all the cooking, etc., meaning she's a caregiver. Uh, she's brave despite her own fears. She uses the fact that Edward can't read her thoughts to hide her fear and tell him that she's not afraid of him. She puts herself in possible danger to gain the trust and friendship of another. Uh, she's a good listener. She's humble. She's non-judgmental. And Katie feels that the movies don't do a good job of showing most of these as it cuts out all the secondary relationships and pretty much everything not pertaining to advancing the plot between girl and vampire. I'll admit, when I saw the movie, I was kind of upset at how much they cut out. Um, so she recommends to anybody to read the books before watching any of the movies. All right. Well, thanks for writing in. And, of course, if you have any questions or comments you'd like to send our way, you can email us at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And we also have a blog called How To Stuff. It is at howstuffworks.com. And finally, for a riveting article, How the Disney Princesses Work, you can go to howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really needs your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right. 